Hi, this is Savio. I've been seeking answers to some of life's most perplexing questions my entire life. In 2014, I was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. And ever since, I realized my calling existed outside of what I knew to be familiar. This podcast is home for survivors like myself and those who yearn to build resilience in their mindset and live their best life. In Season 3, the show includes a mix of coaching sessions followed by interviews with those from all walks of life who have been successful in the wellness, business, media, and travel industries. The intent is to show the human experience in its rawest form so that others may glean insight. Nothing is rehearsed. As a board-certified wellness coach, number one best-selling author, and syndicated columnist, my job is to ask the deep questions of those trying to make sense of their place in this fractured world. I believe life speaks to us in different ways. Many of us listen, but don't know how or where to begin. As someone who has crossed the bridge between life and death, I say simply, begin where you are now and get busy living. If you liked today's episode, I would appreciate it if you could share it. Be sure to tag me at The Human Resolve so I can reciprocate in kind. So without further ado, welcome to The Human Resolve Podcast. Today's podcast guest on resilience is director of the Bureau of Trust Fund Administration and board member of Ticks and Tourette across the globe, Jerry Gidner. As Jerry states, you have to own your own story to be resilient. I've had Tourette ticks since I was nine. I'm 61, so I've been ticking for 52 years. I got picked on a lot. I got bullied a lot. I still am a pretty big introvert these days, but life goes on and you try to integrate into a ticking person into a non-ticking world. My name is Jerry Gidner and I have Tourette syndrome and I am a member of the board of directors of the Tourette Association of America. Um, used to be called the Tourette Syndrome Association, so I had a little mental throwback there. Uh, it's the Tourette Association of America, and it is the um, largest um, national nonprofit in the United States supporting people affected by Tourette Syndrome. Okay, excellent. So, Jerry, you uh, contributed to my interview series, uh, Rising to Resilience, mm-hmm. How to Be Resilient During Turbulent Times. Just wanted to do a deep dive into some of the items and themes that you mentioned. One thing that really struck me is this idea of finding your home base. Can you expound right. more on that? Sure. So when I was thinking about the article, I was just thinking about what helps me get through, uh, you know, the rough days with Tourette's, uh, if ticks are bad, or I mean, could be anything else going on. Just, you know, look at the world. There's a lot going on. Um, and for me, just having a place I can call home, um, you know, by which I mean relationships and, and obviously my home is at home uh, with my wife and kids. But um, but beyond that, um, I really was thinking about it and just thought, you know, I have these three friends who uh, we, we've just been through a lot over, say, the last 15 years and we've laughed and we've cried and we've worked together and we've been friends outside of work. and. You know, I even throughout the entire pandemic, you know, I, I will talk to at least one of them every day, sometimes all three of them in a day, um, sometimes more than one at the same time uh, with the wonders of technology. And um, they all know I have Tourette's. They don't care. They uh, if 
anything, maybe they, they love me more for it. Um, because they see the things that it does bring me. Um, and yeah, without the three of them, um, some of this would just be, would be pretty tough. You know, I just can, we can talk about all kinds of things. You know, we just, you know, talk trash sometimes we talk, uh, talk politics. Sometimes we, we talk families, uh, commiserate, we plan, we celebrate, and just, just having that, that base, um, sort of outside my actual home and family to me, I, I just realized, uh, as, as we were doing that interview, just really made it, uh, very important and, uh, sort of started realizing how important that is just people who will love you, uh, regardless of who or what you are. And that's just a, that's a real solid foundation to be able to face the world from, I have found. Yeah. I know in the article too, you mentioned a little bit about your Native American background and yeah. yourself being a highest ranking federal employee with Tourette's syndrome. Right. Um, I would just love to just find out more about that. Like how, how has that, how does that feel? How, what's been your experiences? Well, on the, on the Native American piece first, yeah, so I'm a citizen of the Sioux St. Marie tribe from Northern Michigan, and um, I never lived on our reservation. I lived in Michigan for a long time. Uh, my mom grew up about as far north in the lower peninsula of Michigan as you can go and still be in the lower peninsula of Michigan. Uh, our reservation is in the Northern Peninsula right on the Canadian border, but um, but you know, we, you, I knew from a young age that uh, I was descended from people from that tribe, and you know, <clears throat> as the years went by, um, it, you know, I did become a citizen and enrolled citizen, and that's meant a ton to me. Um, you know, I'm probably not close enough to that culture um, for it to be um, truly a home, uh, in, maybe in the way I wish it was. Um, but I've spent, as you mentioned, uh, my, you know, my day job, I'm an executive in the federal government and, uh, I worked on native American issues, um, and for organizations dealing with native Americans for much of my 30 year federal career. And, um, so many of my contacts, friends, um, People I follow or follow me on social media, people I interact with are Native Americans. So, and, you know, in that sense, even though I'm not horribly closely tied in to the day-to-day -day culture of my tribe, um, I, it is a really large community that it's just um, really nice to be a part of. And as far as the federal government piece goes, so I am a senior executive in the federal government, and those are the that's the top layer of career, um, career employees, I guess you'd say. If there's 2 million federal employees, there's between seven and 8,000 senior executives. So you will know, we'll be bureau directors, office directors. We're the ones mostly who interact with the political leadership as they come and go. Um, and I've been in the federal government about 30 years, I guess going on 30 years, I've been a senior executive, uh, about 20 of that, 19 of that. So I've been doing it a long time. And 
this kind of gets to the part in my article where I was talking about you have to own your own story to be resilient. And, you know, I've had Tourette's ticks since I was nine. Uh, I'm 61. So uh, I've been ticking for 52 years. But of course, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 45 years old. So much of that, I was just this freaky, twitchy kid, did not know why I did these things. Um, and, you know, I got picked on a lot. I got bullied a lot. Um, and what a lot of people do in those situations is, you know, you pull inside yourself, uh, you avoid people, you become a loner. And I, to some extent, I did all of those things. Um, I still am a pretty big introvert to these days, but as life goes on and you try to integrate into a, as a ticking person into a non-ticking world, uh, you know, you mask it, you hide it. Um, to this day, if I walk into an auditorium, movie theater, um, you know, back in the day, college lecture hall, I haven't been in one of those for some time, but um, I will sit back row on one of the aisles because nobody else in the class can see you and the professor can only see you if they happen to be looking at you and then you know you can do this um you know and kind of either control or hide your facial tics for a while um so you do all these kinds of things to avoid people knowing that you have Tourette's and then Finally, I got diagnosed at 45 around then. Um, and my wife said, so are you gonna tell anybody? And I said, I'm gonna tell everybody. And it, it really took, you know, cause if I'd start a new job, you know, even in the same organization, so maybe I'd know people in that office, but maybe I'd come in as a head of that office or part of that office. You know, I knew I ticked, they knew I ticked. Uh, I knew, they knew I ticked, you know, it's just this weird awkwardness that I couldn't address because I didn't have the words for it. I didn't have the label for it. And after I, di I was diagnosed, in fact, not long after that, I um, did start a new job. I came in as a, as a deputy bureau director for a group of people. Many of them I knew, some of them I did not. And so they all knew I ticked. But it's for the first time in my life, I was able to have a staff meet and say, hey, you know, I, I tick, I have Tourette's syndrome. And it just, it took it off the table. And, and I have found, not everybody is as lucky. I have found nobody cares. You know, almost universally, people, at least since I've been able to identify it, I tell, it, tell people and they kind of go, you know, most people at least have heard of it these days. And um, it really just takes it off the table as an issue. And so sometime, and it took longer than that after you know, that first meeting, but uh, I got to the point where I got comfortable enough talking about it in public. You know, I do presentations for Disability Awareness Month or mental health awareness month and you can have lots of debates about is it a dis disability is it a mental health issue um many people have many talk thoughts about that but um i became comfortable talking about it and then one day just a couple years ago 
you know, I'm, uh, I'm a bureau director. Um, and I just thought, you know, there's 7,000, 7,500 senior executives. I don't know all of them, of course. Um, I don't know any others with Tourette's syndrome. And I just got thinking, man, I might be the highest ranking career um, member of the federal workplace with Tourette's syndrome. And, you know, there's one, the incidence rate is say one in a hundred, you know, so debatable as well, but I work in a department with 70,000 people. That means 700 people have Tourette's and um, after been through, you know, growing up with it, somehow making my way to the top ranks of the federal government, despite it, um, I just want to be able to help others. And, um, you know, I want people to get to the top ranks of the federal government because of it, not despite it. And, um, you know, for your watchers, uh, you know, if you see my name, it says, seeing patterns there's so many things so many gifts that tourette syndrome has brought me that make me a much better leader and make me really excel at work and yes i tick uncontrollably and i know some people even some employees well i've heard it secondhand usually but you know i'll hear they say boy it's really hard to watch jerry today it's like yeah i get it uh, it was really hard to be Jerry today, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I, I yeah. love it. I love it when you put in the article about, I can't run away from it. I can't make you go away. I can't hide right. from it. And right. it's so empowering. So how do you define resilience? Well, you know, it, I, I think I said in the article, you know, it's it's just the ability to, to keep going in face of challenges. And, you know, everybody has challenges, um, Tourette syndrome, does not make any of those challenges easier. Um, you know, people with Tourette's don't have a monopoly on that. Any chronic disease, uh, you know, any minority status, you know, all, all this makes life harder. Um, but at some point, you have to decide. You know, uh, are you going to let it stop you or pigeonhole you, or are you going to find a way? And so, I guess maybe even unconsciously, I just decided, well, I'm going to find a way. And half the time, I didn't even know where I was finding a way to, you know, because the career is somewhat of an accident. Um, but I feel like I, I, I did. I've had a great career and great friends, as I mentioned before. And so I think it's just that ability one way or other, one way or another, just keep going. Um, you know, and it's a, uh, well, we're filming this on Martin Luther King Day, and uh, I've just seen quotes today about, you know, from Martin Luther King, like, if you can't, can't fly, run, if you can't run, walk, if you can't walk, crawl, but just keep moving forward. And yeah, maybe that's a good, good message for today. It's just um, maybe you want to go straight from point A to point B, you know, full throttle, but maybe because of your condition or because of what obstacles there are, uh, you got to go to point A and point C and point D and finally get back to B um, to a totally different pattern. But, you know, you, you have your superpowers, a curious soul. I, you know, I think if you're curious and just keep um, 
looking for like there's no one way to get where you're going um and i always like to say you know if you had started asking me when i was 15 years old what were you going to be doing what did you want what did you think you would be doing in five years um and if you'd asked me that every single year from then until now like i i always had an answer but i would have been wrong every single time and i have absolutely no regrets about that so um i just think you have to keep going you have to be open to whatever possibilities and you have to be willing to walk through doors when they open for you and maybe shut some doors when they're not right for you. I know you also beautifully expressed your interaction and your experience with your grandmother, how she was a source of an example for you. Right. I'd love to learn more about that. Well, my grandmother um, had the very uh, early 1900s uh, name of Mildred, um, Mildred Gidner, my, my dad's mom, and she was a farm wife. Um, and they had a, well, a couple different farms. So all the time I was alive, they had a little farm um, in uh, the, the booming uh, burg of Potterville, Michigan, uh, between Charlotte and Potterville. Yeah, and if you're in Michigan, it's Charlotte. If it's you're in the Carolinas, it's Charlotte, but Michigan, it's Charlotte. And um, the woman just never stopped going. Um, and I just have, you know, and she died ultimately. If she lived into her well into her nineties, didn't really slow down to the very last. And you know, uh, the the kitchen was her domain. Um, even you know, as an adult, try to get her to sit down and you know make a sandwich by herself. Uh, you know, the woman <laughs> would nearly have a heart attack. It just it just was not done. And you know, I just remember a couple images when she was, I don't know. She must have been in her 70s or maybe 80s. You know, there's all these adults standing around, and you know, she was a tiny little thing anyway. Um, and we'd be having, you know, some big meal, some holiday meal, which, of course, she would prepare. Um, and then, you know, it's time to bring chairs in. You know, and instead of saying, you know, you, you got 10 other adults standing there, like, hey, somebody go bring the chairs in. You know she'd scurry off and go start hauling chairs in until we'd say, no, stop, put that, like, we'll, we'll bring the chairs in. Uh, you know, and you had to kind of pry them out of her hands. And, uh, and you know, I don't know the source of her resilience. I guess didn't really think about it, think to talk to her about that. Um, but I know it's just, she, she just kept going, you know? And uh, uh, it would, I would, there's a conversation I would love to have. It'd be to have that with her, you know, what, what was it? You know, I don't, don't think life was great all the time. I mean, they had a farm, so I had food, but you know, they were lived through the depression and the uh, couple world wars. And um, actually the, the uh, 1918 flu pandemic, um, you know, sort of, topical for today um just kept going so um, just looking back she's a bit of a of an inspiration but i don't know really what it was that motivated her to have that sort of persistence yeah i know in the article too you mentioned that you um obtained your master thesis in india um for someone yeah. whose parents are from goa india 
Um, okay. Just curious about you sort of mentioning this idea of like the 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 lone twitchy man that didn't that did not bear notice. <laughs> I would love for you to tell that story. Well, um, yes, in the article I told a story about being at a train depot, um, and well, for one thing, you know, I, I started. I, I was there on a, a program. I was there for seven months, I guess, working on my master's thesis. This fabulous country and fabulous opportunity. Um, and, you know, when you walk around New Delhi, or here I was, this tall, you know, even though I'm Native American, I realized I look like, you know, some white guy. Well, here I am, you know, I'm six foot two um, on a low gravity day, anyhow. And uh, there I'm walking around New Delhi. Um, you know, and obviously there's tourists around, but, you know, it's a city largely of smaller, browner people. And um, you could really stick out, but, but you know, there's just so much going on there with um, so many people. And, um, you know, of course, in the tourist areas, and this is not, you know, the image I hold of India, but, you know, there's people begging, there's, there's lepers begging. Um, you know, at least when I was there, there's just this constant tumult and commotion and everything going on. And um, in a way that brought a sense of anonymity, you know, um, because there was gurus and cows and it, it was just, you know, to my mind, uh, not intending to insult anybody from that country or from, from Delhi, which I loved, but, you know, it was pretty chaotic, you know, from a kid uh, who just flew over there from uh, East Lansing, Michigan, you know, <laughs> yes. I never experienced anything in like it in the world and in my life. And I just kind of felt like it didn't matter. There's just so much going on there that I could be um, sort of anonymous, even though I was uh, twitching a lot. Um, and then there's this other story, and, and I love this. I love the story, and I actually loved that day. There was something about it was very powerful. I was I traveled a lot when I was there, and I'd be on these trains across the countryside, and or buses, and sometimes you you know you'd stop and change trains, and of course the language was you know things were large, largely written in Hindi, and but you know it was just an adventure, and um, and I was. Um, at this train depot, I can't remember where, but it was hot and I was waiting for a train, which is going to be a couple hours. And I just went out on the platform and there was no benches. And I just sat against the wall of the depot. Um, and there's all these local people around there or fellow travelers. Not, they were there. They're probably waiting for a train to go somewhere. So um, not from North America. <laughs> I mean, just... You know, and um, they're Indian folks there. And, you know, in India, um, people haven't been there. Like, it is not impolite to stare at people. And this is something that I think a lot of, you know, Westerners, if they go there, they it makes them very uncomfortable. But you can be on a bus ride somewhere and somebody will sit there and stare at you for three hours straight. <laughs> And it's, you know, it's unnerving for us, but that's, we're in their world and that's their culture. Um, well, these, uh, this group of people 
all waiting for the train, uh, you know, and I was, you know, an anomaly anyway, because of what I look like and who I am, uh, but also because of what I do. And they formed a semicircle around me, sitting on the platform. So we're all just sitting on the concrete. I'm against the wall. They're sitting in a semicircle around me, you know, maybe 10 feet away from me, um, like 30 people um, sitting and staring at me like for three hours. Wow. And I got, and um, I'm trying to remember now. I mean, obviously I had some tutoring in Hindi, but you know, I was speaking, you know, two year old Hindi at best. Um, and some of them, I think had a few words of English, but we really weren't communicating with language. And like, I never felt threatened. It wasn't, it wasn't like I'm being surrounded by harass by a hostile crowd. It wasn't that at all. It was just, I'm different and here I am in their world and they're sitting and watching me. And, um, I don't know, get back to the resilience theme. I think things like that, you know, you either let it destroy you or you let it strengthen you. Um, and like, I, there's nothing about Tourette's that's going to destroy me. <laughs> you know, I just decided that a long time ago. So uh, I just take it as a, uh, you know, whatever. I, I gave, gave them something entertaining to do while they were stuck at the train depot. I, you know, I, I don't know, but it's just, but it's experiences like that. And would it, would the same thing have happened if I'd just been the, you know, the white looking guy, sitting there um would have happened if i was a indian person with ticks like i, I don't know was it the comment like I, i'll never know yeah. um but it, it was a very interesting uh a very introspective day <laughs> i i will say yeah so um, so what were, what are your five steps to becoming more resilient so um i mean the five that i think i listed um were uh in the interview own your own story, which I talked about. Uh, I, I derive a lot of strength from the fact that here I am, I've got it. Um, I might be able to be a role model for people. Um, have a sense of humor, you know, like that situation on the train platform. I mean, come on, that's funny as hell, you know, come <laughs> on, it really is. Yeah. You know, and um, so and I'm not just talking about Tourette's, but you, you just have to have a sense of humor mm -hmm. about the world, uh, whether you have Tourette's or not. Um, um, you have to have a home base we talked about. Um, one of the things that, I, that I'd like to think about is, um, you know, which I mentioned is you just have to in some ways realize the insignificance of it all. I mean, here we are and it can be all about, oh, me, I have Tourette's, you know, woe is me, um, where there's people starving, there's people dying um, in the ocean, trying to get away from violence in their home country, um, to take it a step out. I mean, we are in a galaxy with trillions upon trillions upon trillions of stars and planets. Yeah. We're a tiny little speck. I'm a tiny little speck. You know, this collection of atoms decided to be Jerry Gidner for however many years. Um, and then they'll go off and, and be something else. 
uh, for a while. Um, and um, you really, uh, I, I don't know, when, when, I, when I'm starting to feel sad for myself for some reason, I just think having, having those thoughts, it's like, yeah, I know things are important to me, but when in the grand sweep of history and space and time, that um, this is really insignificant and not even worth worrying about. And then I think the last one was, um, oh, helping others, uh, which is why uh, just recently, it's just coming up on a year that I've been on the board of the Tourette's Association. And, and um, but even, you know, you know, when I'm feeling down, uh, and I think there's science behind this, you know, when, if I'm feeling down, you know, if I help somebody else, it can make me feel a lot better, you know, and whether that's giving to the five bucks to the homeless person you pass or rounding up for the food bank at the grocery store or, you know, or shoveling somebody's sidewalk when it snows or just hopefully try to make some change on a, you know, on a national or international level. Um, I'm also part of an, of a group founding an international Tourette's syndrome uh, support group. And, um, and so to me, just giving my time back and, and, you know, if I can make things better for that nine-year-old kid who starts ticking on the school bus uh, tomorrow morning, um, because there was no help for me. I, I had to figure that out on my own. Um, and if I can change the world such that there is help for that person, then for me, all this struggle has been worthwhile. Yeah. So I think those were my five. Yeah. So now I want to transition into the portion of yeah. brainstorming. Uh, and I would love to talk about this idea of neurodiversity. Yeah. And what pain points could you and I maybe come up with that we could, you know, shed more light or more insights on? Well, one I think that is really topical right now, um, you know, for neurodiversity, which is really, you know, just people who think differently, you know, or whose brains work differently, whether it's somebody with Tourette's, um, autism, ADHD, depression, bipolar, like there's all these things, there's all these different ways that brains work um, that are not, quote, the normal, um, even though there's a lot of us out here <laughs> with, with those things. Um, you know, I, I will I'll just digress for one second if I could. You know, the, the general statistic is that one in a hundred people have Tourette syndrome or a related tick disorder. Um, that's like 80 million people in the world. If that were a country, that's the 20th largest country in the world. Yeah. You know, that's between Germany and Thailand in population. And yes, I'm a big enough nerd that I looked that up to find out. <laughs> um, there's a lot of people whose brains are not quote normal and um but the world is built for people whose brains are uh quote normal and so right now i think the pain point that we're going to see is there's all these accommodations that you can have for working and all of a sudden for the last and for years and years oh we can't possibly do that you could possibly work remote all of a sudden in two weeks, everybody went remote. In most cases it's um, office workers anyway. Um, 
not talking about you grocery store workers or healthcare workers, um, our saviors, um, but a lot of us did. And it's working great, you know, uh, for a lot of us. And so, and for a lot of people, you know, with conditions like this, um, somebody might have coprolalia, which some people with Tourette's have, which is where you say inappropriate words. That could be harder live in an office setting. It might not be an issue at all if you're at home on a Zoom call where you're muted most of the time unless you're actually talking. Um, that's an accommodation we've shown for the past two years. People can get their work done that way. Um, and I'm, I'm afraid there's gonna be, um, whenever we get past this, you know, accursed plague, there's gonna be this, oh, well, that worked, but now, hey, everybody back in the office, well, I'd like to work remotely. Oh, that's just not possible. Well, it is possible. And so, you know, it's again, the world designed for the normal brain imposing rules that really make it much harder for those whose brains are different. And I've had employees who say, who call me up and say, my depression or anxiety, you know, take your pick is really bad today. Like I can work fine from here. I cannot leave the house today. Great. Work from home. You know, that, that, and this is even before the pandemic work from home. That's great. Like why, why does it matter to me? And I, so I just think, um, I really think we've just scratched the surface with the technology and the, the normalizing, you know, letting people with conditions that make it hard for them to be in, you know, an office setting on a daily or periodic basis, uh, normalize letting them not be there um, and still be able to do great work. So for me, that's an area I'm, um, we, there's been a ton in the past two years, a ton of progress, but I'm just really afraid that, man, that could just backslide very, very quickly. Yeah, I, I think for me, it sort of echoes the point you made in the article as well about Brene Brown's work. I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of hers. Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes to neurodiversity, it's really about having not only empathy, but having the vulnerability to, to speak your truth and to say what you right. need and say what right. you want. And I think that's really hard um, for most people. But I think if we get comfortable in the uncomfortable, um, I think perhaps maybe changes, good changes can happen. Right. Well, and that's why I try to talk about this and the vulnerability, you know, try standing in front of a room full of people and saying you have a neurological disorder that there's normally a stigma attached to, you know, that that could go wrong. Yeah. Um, for a lot of people that does go wrong. Um, you know, I mentioned in the in the interview or the article that uh, you know, even in college, I had people stand right in front of me and mimic my tics to my face. Um, you know, and so, um, yeah, it's um, a lot, a lot more people have more empathy and more vulnerability and us accepting that would be a huge way to ease the burden and let us, you know, where I, where I work, like I said, I'm a bureau director, you know, our mantra is like people are people first and employees second, you know, everybody has stuff going on in there in their world um, outside of work. And you can't expect to ignore that and have them come in and just do 
stellar work if you know their relatives are sick or their kids are you know are sick or just there's things in their life you know what you know whether it's a chronic or acute illness like um pe people just need the flexibility and i think even right now you know there's some headline i was reading the other day and i didn't click through and read it because we're living it but just you know we're undergoing two years of collective trauma yep you now just it, chill out you know just just understand people mentally and physically and emotionally are not where they were two years ago even if they haven't been sick or even if they haven't uh, had people in their family sick or even if they haven't lost people um this has been really hard for people and that empathy you're talking about just could we just understand that and you know stop being cruel to each other just for fun um yeah and the studies are clear that the body stores trauma uh, yeah, absolutely now, later months years whatever the case may be um so jerry this has been a fascinating conversation can you tell my audience where they can find more information about you and your work sure um you can find me um on facebook twitter and linkedin um it will either be just well linkedin is just my name jerry gidner um there's maybe two of us in the world so uh you can find me um i think on uh, twitter it might be l gid el underscore gid which is a, a nickname uh somebody gave me 100 years ago um you, i i write on the side as well and uh you can find a lot of my work at www.jerrygidner.com um Tourette Association of America is Tourette.org and the international group is Ticks and Tourettes around the globe. It's T-TAG and you can find them on social media as well. Awesome. Yeah. Jerry, this has been so fascinating. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's a lot I really hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast episode of The Human Resolve. If you feel that others may enjoy this episode as well, please share socially at The Human Resolve. You can also visit my website, thehumanresolve.com, where I offer one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions, a subscription to my weekly newsletter, where I probe into the secrets from living smarter to feeding your three brains, and my author website, isurvivedcancer.co, where you can purchase my number one best-selling book, I Survived Cancer and Here Is How I Did It. 35 cancer survivors share their journey and view the book trailer, including excerpts from the book. If you could also help me out and give me a review and rating on this podcast platform, because I do care what you have to say, I would really appreciate it. Now, get out there, my friends, and get busy living.